0: I invite you to listen to the Word of God as it comes to us today from the 26th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. And I want to read out aloud today a selection of these verses. The scene here is the Garden of Gethsemane. It is the night of Jesus' arrest. And let's hear the Word of the Lord together. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and elders of the people. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the chief priest, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face, and struck him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you And I think back to Jesus' own response to all of this treatment, as it is recorded in the gospel according to Luke, the twenty second chapter. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. What should we do about ISIS? That's the question I want to ask you today. Not because I'm a foreign policy analyst, or because I'm running for office, or because I'm a military strategist. I'm asking you the question that is on the mind I know of many these days. They're asking this question in various contexts to their politicians, and I find even to their pastors. And I think it's a significant question, a question that's on my own mind because it cuts right to the heart of this crucial subject we've been talking about in recent weeks here, the topic of power. If you've been tracking with this series that we've been doing here at Christ Church this season, then you already get the crucial idea that as far as Christians are concerned, power is a basically good thing. One of the important ideas we've absorbed here is that power in its original form is one of God's great gifts to us. Power is the capacity that our creator has entrusted to us, uh, placed inside of us uh, as a sign of his presence with us. The capacity to make stuff and to make sense of life in a way that promotes the flourishing of the image of God In ourselves, in other people, and in this entire creation that he has made. As we've suggested over the last couple of weeks, however, sometimes power goes wrong. Sometimes this very good gift that we have been entrusted with gets corrupted in one way or another. For example, power goes wrong when we use it to serve an idol instead of the true God and his good purposes for the creation Uh, We see that distortion plainly in the uh, example of the chief priests and the elders of the people that we have just read about in Matthew chapter 26. In the place of God, these people have substituted the idol of religious righteousness. The chief priests and the elders of the people at this point are no longer worshipping the true God. They are worshipping this much smaller idol, They've got this image of a God who is a narrow, judging, clean freak deity who is generally quite impressed with them because of their adherence to the letter of the law. And as a result of worshipping that idol instead of the true God, these people are now using their power, their authority and capacity in a very different way than helping Uh, widen the circle of flourishing in their world. These religious figures are now using their power to condemn other people, to try and make them conform to an extremely narrow standard in a way that does not actually serve the purposes of the true God at all. It just gives them a greater sense of control and of personal significance and, and of comfort to be able to force other people into their mold. Can you see how this same kind of distortion of power is going on in the movement we call ISIS? This this condemning, controlling, conforming movement that seems to, that is purported to serve the, the great God, but in actuality simply deepens the uh, practicers of this uh, in their sense of, of control or personal significance or comfort. As we explored last week, a second way that power goes wrong is when it is primarily used to amass privilege for oneself. Now let me be very clear about this, that it's not wrong to enjoy the fruit of our labors. It's not a bad thing to to savor the sweet things of life, the cookies of life. That's not a bad thing. But it is very important to remember that when God puts us in a position of privilege, when he gives us a a place of status and influence uh, as a result of uh, our economics or our natural giftings or our Our achievements. When God puts us in that kind of a position, it is not only that we might be raised up, it is actually to put us in a better position to help others be lifted up. And this is one of the great themes of the Bible, actually. This is why God put Joseph in the government of Egypt, took him out of the backwater of Israel, and and set him into the top administration of Egypt in a time of Of famine. It was not just to lift Joseph up. It was so that he might be in a better position to lift many, many others up. And Joseph got that. It's why uh, God put Daniel in the cabinet of Babylon at a strategic moment. It's why he put Esther in the A white house of ancient Persia at a critical moment. It's why God gave Solomon great wealth and why he favored Mary with an extraordinary child. It was not only to bless them, they were blessed by being in that position. It was also that they might be in a position to widen the circle of blessing, the circle of flourishing for others. Are you getting this? This is why God gives us the privilege. This is the ultimate privilege to be able to widen the circle of flourishing in his creation. But here is where the second figure we meet in Matthew 26 goes wrong. Uh, Judas, one of the twelve, had signed on with Jesus... because he wanted a greater position of influence. Up to the time that he met Christ, Judas had been part of a, a secret network in ancient Israel, known as the Zealots. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Zealots. Okay, the Zealots, the Romans called terrorists. That's how they were regarded. Judas was a sleeper cell in himself. And he joined the company of Jesus because he believed that Christ would lead the revolution that would kick the Romans out and put his party, his group of people, in. In other words, Judas's main reason for seeking position was not primarily to lift other people up. It was because Judas wanted power to expand his own privileges. And we know we get a clue as to the, this reality, as to his true motivations, because the Bible tells us that, that as... Uh, the change he's looking for comes slowly or doesn't seem to be coming. Judas begins taking from the common purse of the disciples. He's stealing on the sly. And he ultimately decides to sell Jesus out entirely for a handful of cash, silver coins, that would enhance his privilege, he believes. Now, do you see how this is going on with this ISIS movement too? This caliphate they're bent on building up endows certain people with special privileges, but it leaves most people out. Women, for example. Right? And uh, certain kinds of Muslims and and every kind of non-Muslim is left out of the circle of blessing. This is not what power is to be used for. Jesus, in contrast, shows us how power is meant to work. He's been out there in the stories leading up to this moment in Matthew 26, healing people, feeding people, instructing people. He's been showing compassion and hospitality to outcasts. He's been speaking up for those who have no defender and who are being wronged. Uh, he's, He's challenging the hypocrisy that allows those Injustices to continue. He's inspiring listeners to use their gifts to widen the circle of blessing for others. Jesus is out there proclaiming the heart of God and demonstrating the heart of God and, and, and God's love and God's hope for all of the creation. Jesus is showing us how power is supposed to be used. But here's the problem. Corrupt power is always threatened by true power. When corrupt power sees true power in action, it it's threatened by it. I remember there was a grocer in our community when I lived in Northern Ireland during the troubled years, who who was um, a, an extraordinarily gracious guy. He was a he was in a in a culture that was just hunkered down upon itself. He was. He was always reaching out and building bridges between Catholics and Protestants. There was a policeman in our neighborhood that was just like that. He happened to be a Protestant man. and, And we were living in a Catholic neighborhood. And he was always showing a generosity towards the folks of our community. And the terrorists came in and shot both of those guys. Because corrupt power does not like to see true power. It's threatened by the kind of Jesus power that existed in those those men. The person and work of Jesus here is such a blazing challenge to all of those people who have corrupted power that those who are abusing it decide they can stand the rebuke of Jesus' presence no longer. And so as Matthew 26 tells us, they used armed coercion to arrest him. They show up with swords and clubs. They engage in a perversion of justice to convict him of wrong. A night court with false witnesses, right? And finally, they use violence to try and silence him entirely. They beat him and eventually crucify him. All to maintain their position and their benefits. These are the three faces of corrupted power in every single generation and culture. If you need a more current reminder of this, maybe this picture will help you. If you need a reminder of how corrupted power works at its worst, this is a snapshot taken from a video in which 21 Coptic Christians are suffering similar treatment at the hands, the heavy hands, of the ISIS form of power in Libya just last month. Pictures like this display a regime that routinely uses armed coercion to kidnap people or to force conformity with their version of God. It reveals a system of injustice that that victimizes the weak and invalidates the majority, benefiting only a few. It exposes a tyranny that uses violence routinely to wipe out resistance. And these 21 individuals pictured up on the screen were brutally beheaded by their captors shortly after that video. That picture that you see there was taken. Now, people of the Muslim faith and of every religion on earth need to speak up and say that this is not the way of the great God. There is nothing great about coercion and injustice and violence. And people of of every nation and tribe need to speak out against the, the terrible corruption of power we're witnessing right now. This This way of using power is in fact the anti-God. It's the way of that old enemy, the serpent himself. The same idolatrous, privilege-seeking kind of sin that sought the execution of Jesus and still expresses itself in the genocide and the racism and the human trafficking and so many of the other horrors of our time. All of this... All of this phenomenon we see is what happens when the power God gave us for image bearing and for human flourishing gets deeply corrupted. And it's only value to us. The only value of ever even seeing a photograph like that. Don't watch the video by all means. The only value is to remind us that we still live in a world so desperately in need of a savior so desperately in need of the power of salvation from beyond itself so what should we do about isis what should we what should we as christian people do about isis well the question seems important to me because how we respond to this particular evil may give us clues as to how we should be responding to some of the other forms of coercion, injustice, and violence that are going on in our time. So let me just suggest two perspectives and then let us be on our way. First of all, I believe we should be praying that our government continues to take measured steps alongside of other governments to forcibly stop the progress of this evil. The Bible suggests that there are times when the forceful exercise of power is needed to stop the heavy hand of evil. In the Old Testament, for example, God orders the destruction of an entire Canaanite cult. He orders the Israelites to put that cult to the ban, as it said. And and it's read sometimes as just an evidence that God really is bloodthirsty. No, it's not the evidence of that at all. It's the evidence that sometimes, in rare moments, it is necessary to use a preponderance of force to stop the, the multiplication of evil that would take so many more lives were it permitted to continue. In the book of Revelation, we see God acting again with powerful force to vanquish evil once and for all. And in his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul says that part of the role of good governments is to be that strong hand that opposes the heavy hand. That part of the responsibility of government on earth is to to be God's servants, Uh, Paul puts it in Romans 13, to be agents of wrath that bring punishment upon the wrongdoer. ISIS is no ordinary wrongdoer. Okay, we've done wrong as a nation. You and I do wrong as individuals. This is a different kind of wrongdoing. It is raping women systematically. It is crucifying children. I've seen the pictures. It's beheading Christians And Muslims, it's slaughtering even fellow Muslims with an apocalyptic kind of madness that is growing day by day by day. At the top of our prayer list today, I think should be that God will move in the governments of this earth to give that measure of wisdom and courage necessary to put a forceful stop to this virulent cancer of corrupted power. ...that this movement suggests. And I would go on to say that the same must be said... ...of of the necessity of governments taking action... ...against the spread of human trafficking... ...which in our time is larger than the entire European slave trade combined. The injustice of human trafficking in our country and our world... ...is something that government needs to be moving against... And when it is government itself that is the wrongdoer. And I I think it is now obvious, it has to be obvious to us, that, that amidst all the other forms of wrongdoing that maybe were going on in Ferguson, Missouri, amongst other places, that government was at fault in a systematic way, in a systematic manner of injustice in that circle. And so in those circumstances, it's the job of Christians to call for change in administration. To see a better form of government installed in those kinds of places. As we feel the fervor of all this, maybe I'm the only one who feels the fervor of all this. But as we feel worked up by what we're seeing happening in our times... It is also important, secondly, that we be part of the movement of grace that overcomes evil with good. There is always this risk, you see, that in opposing wrong, we will take up the methodology of evil itself and be corrupted by it. This is always the danger with force, is that it will actually take hold of us and corrupt us. I think of the times when my kids uh, one of my kids has done something that seemed to me as a parent atrocious right and I raised my hand you know to to exact righteous correction how many of you've been there as parents you don't need to raise your hands and then suddenly stopped as I felt moving through my arm something that was not goodness right that was was at risk of perpetrating a far greater evil in in that particular moment. This is what happens when one takes up the tools Uh, of force, is this risk that it will overtake us in a way and make us an agent of evil. I remember my years in Belfast, and I would watch as the... um, As the government worked so hard to suppress the violence that was going on in our community. And there were bombs and lynchings and and just terrible things happening at the height of terrorism there. And the government would try and squelch by violence itself what was going on there. And I would just watch as as the anger in the young people I knew was metastasized. Right? Creating waves of new recruits for the paramilitary forces. Maybe this is why when Simon Peter sees Jesus being arrested and he goes for his sword and he he reaches out and he slashes off the, the, the ear of one of the arresting soldiers, Jesus did not say, hey, you missed his neck, Pete. Whack that mole again. Right? Jesus does not say that. But instead, Jesus says, No more of this. Enough of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. How like a God, don't you think? To use power to create and not to destroy. Even after heinous wrongdoers have coercively arrested him and unjustly convicted him and beaten and bloodied him and hung him on a cross to die, Jesus does not return evil for evil. On the contrary, Jesus prays for those who persecute him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. It's as if Jesus believes that most of the time, the most effective strategy for overcoming evil is actually to absorb it. You want to attack it? Absorb it. Or as Paul says, overcome evil with good. Do you know what ISIS called those Coptic Christians that they executed that day? If you look very closely on the the photograph, you will see two lines. One is Arabic And the other is its English translation. And you can see that ISIS named the Christians they were about to kill people of the cross. It's the one thing about power that the Islamic State has right. As Brian Zond recently observed, Coptic Christianity is one of the oldest branches of our faith. Did you know that? It was founded by the Apostle Mark, the writer of the Gospel. He brought it to Egypt shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And and Coptic Christianity dates way back to before Christianity got all entangled with the Emperor Constantine and all of his worldly notions of power exercised from above what nationalistic or triumphalist Christians might call conquering power, crusading kind of power, the Coptic Christians, they still preserve the memory of a time when the disciples of Jesus exercised power from below. An amazing power from below. What the Apostle Paul would call overcoming power. Church historians tell us That back in those pre-Constantinian days, when the faith was very young and unusually pure, the most frequent commandment of Jesus that was etched on the walls of the catacombs and in the homes of of the early believers were these words. Love your enemies. This was the distinctive kind of power that Christians were bringing into the world. The power of an overcoming kind of love. In a recent interview, the mother of two of the Christians beheaded in Libya was asked what she would do if some of those ISIS members suddenly showed up at her door. And do you know what she said? I quote, I would welcome them into my home in the hope that their hearts could be opened to the love of God. The general bishop of the Coptic Church said, I think as Christians, it's our mandate to forgive. It is what we do. In a world of violence and injustice and coercion, exercising an overcoming kind of love is what we do. You may not know that Christ Church has got more than a passing connection to those Coptic Christians. Six or seven of those who died in Libya that day were members of a fellowship shared by Mama Maggie Gobran, one of our church's closest mission partners and long-term friends. And, And we've got folks sitting here today who have recently been with Mama Maggie and can tell you that the response of the Coptic Christian Church on the whole is remarkably grace-filled to these circumstances. Maggie would tell you herself that the job of Jesus' followers is to perseveringly do good in the face of evil. It's to reclaim those who have been victims of injustice or perpetrators of it. Our role is to proclaim the power of God who forgives sins, who restores life, who overcomes hatred. So here's my question to you. How can you and I make it more of what we do? Maybe some of us need to open up our hands where they have gotten too clenched and heavy in in our treatment of certain people. Perhaps you need to raise your hand And name some of the abuses of power that you see going on. And no longer be silent about them. Maybe maybe I and you could fold our hands more frequently. And pray hard faithfully for those who are working against evil. Or perhaps you might put your hands to the work of restorative justice. By getting involved with. Reclaim 13, a human trafficking rescue ministry our church is connected with, or with one of our inner city ministries, or by donating or volunteering yourself through one of the many other missions that our church supports in trying to advance the cause of creative power in this world. To quote Brian Zahn, here's the bottom line, I think. If the only way of responding to the evil of injustice, is retaliation and revenge, then we conspire with the powers of darkness to keep the world an ugly place. But grace, this overcoming kind of love, is God's idea of how the world can be made new. So, stopping corrupted power would measure strength. And overcoming evil with relentless good is what people of the cross simply do with the power in our hands. Please pray with me. My gracious God, in the midst of the turmoil of our time, make us peacemakers, people who are willing to step into the mess and do the hard work necessary to change conditions. But in the process, Lord, of meeting the violence and injustice, the coercion of our time, Keep us from taking up its tools. Never let us forget the distinctive nature of power that you have shown us. And make us agents of an overcoming kind of good. For this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.